Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And welcome in, everybody. It's Let's Hear It. Once again, you've found us. The podcast has come in. You've done the made the right choice and hit play. And who do you get to hear? But my colleague, Eric Brown, Yay. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm, I'm good, Kirk. I'm, I'm very excited to talk about today's guest. Uh, it, it was, it was a really, really fun and interesting conversation. Well, we got a lot to cover, but I have to just, you know, I have to do a quick little, you know, check-in and survey. So number one, are you healthy? I am. Thank you for asking. And you? Number, yes, I am. Number two, are you remaining, uh, physically distanced? <laughs> To go with my emotional distance, yes. <laughs> this was I was going to ask you: Are you remaining socially connected? I'd like to know that. Are you remaining socially connected? Because that's I, important. I am. By the way, this is nobody cares. I uh, it was recently. We all mother, care. It was. <laughs> it was Mother's Day recently, and yeah. I ordered uh, dinner for my mother from a distance. For she lives in Las Vegas, and it never came. Oh no. And, <laughs> So she she called me. She called my wife. She called the hot, the landline, all the cell phones. Oh. She sent texts. <laughs> I just felt because I was on the I was busy and I, I felt horrible. But um, so I'm I'm physically distanced. I otherwise I would have made her dinner. You know, it's, it's eventually the they, they gave it to the neighbor. Oh. So- <laughs> <laughs> so not only did you think of your mother, but you provided a service to somebody else. So really exactly. it was a twofer. Nice work. Well done. So Phyllis, and this is a great conversation. And, um, you know, I, I feel like you're helping us dig into and expose a dimension of what's been happening these days that is, um, we're not paying enough attention to. I told it to you when we started this, this is a journey of discovery and all of these conversations are starting to speak to one another. And, um, I would love to know if our next guest has actually spent time with any of our previous guests, but there were many themes and many ideas and what she had to share that were, I was just thinking about some of these other conversations we've had on the podcast. Um, this was really awesome, Eric. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? So I spoke with Dominique Durbany, who's the deputy director of closing the women's wealth gap initiative. And I was sitting quietly at my desk when this report came over the transom. Uh, It's called On the Margins, Economic Security for Women of Color Through the Coronavirus Crisis and Beyond. So I opened it up immediately. It's really well done. It's a really comprehensive look at all of the programs that are going on right now. So it's a resource guide, but it also looks immediately at the gaps. And I was first astonished that it got written so fast yeah I mean, it's really it's a you know it's a master's thesis that was written in yeah. a month and it is highlighting an issue that needs more you know if you're living in it 
you're talking about it every day. But not enough people really understand what's going on here, which is the effect of corona on people of color and particularly on women is disproportionate and it's a problem and we've got to fix it. And that's what we talk about. It once again, just the incredible, it's <laughs> just the incredible talent in our field. Just oh, the incredible, just, it just, it's so on display. She's really great. She's just really nice. And it was fun. I, was, uh, I, I hope, I hope people enjoy the conversation, but it, it was really, really nice to speak with her. So Dominique Durbany, deputy director of closing the women's wealth gap on let's hear it. We'll listen and we'll come back and talk. Welcome to let's hear it. My guest today is Dominic Durbany, the Deputy Director of Closing the Women's Wealth Gap Initiative. She's the author of a new report, On the Margins, Economic Security for Women of Color Through the Coronavirus Crisis and Beyond. And boy, oh boy, you wrote this thing fast. Thank you so much, <laughs> Dominic, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, first of all, how, how are you doing? I how are things? I, you're in Atlanta, right? How are, how are you doing there? I'm here. We are unfortunately in one of the sort of guinea pig states for some of this reopening. And we also have a very high case count here. And it's disproportionately harming the African-American community of which I'm a part of. So it's kind of challenging, but we're taking it day by day. Well, we're going to talk a lot about that because this is really what your report gets into. And you've done this really amazing job of chronicling the various programs that have been created, but also identifying where those programs are falling short. In fact, where, as a society, as a culture, where we are falling short. You're talking about the effect of the crisis on people who are already living on the margins and who are working in industries that provide few benefits, that they maybe they pay cash, they don't allow people to work from home. For example, can you can you just talk about more about how this crisis is bringing to light these issues of inequality in ways that we just haven't seen in this form? Absolutely. Um, and again, thank you for having me. And Eric, as you know, narrative plays a really significant role in how we view social issues and problems and then how we respond to them. So what I was seeing in the media as I was tracking the COVID-19 pandemic and the federal government response is people weren't really talking about the impacts of this crisis with a race and gender lens. In the beginning, actually, the story media was telling was that, you know, this virus doesn't discriminate. It can affect any of us. And to your point, we know that people who are already the most marginalized in this country will also be most impacted by this pandemic specifically women of color. As we started to get more information, as we did more testing, we started to hear about the role of race. For example, the disproportionate number of infections and deaths among Black and Latinx and Native American people. But people weren't necessarily reporting the full story. It's not necessarily genealogy or personal behavior that's causing them to get sick at a higher rate. It's more about the social determinants of health. Black and brown people have been relegated for centuries to living in poverty, working in low-paid jobs without access to benefits like health care and paid leave, living in food deserts, having housing instability, and having little to no wealth. And all of these things compounded contribute to having pre-existing health conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, or asthma that have been found to worsen COVID-19. In terms of gender, we started to see some of the economic effects of the crisis as people started filing for unemployment, right? More than 30 million people unemployed and half to two thirds of those filings have been among women. And so they started to kind of look into, well, who are the people losing their jobs? 
what are the industries that are eliminating workers who works in those industries? And they found that it's mostly women and specifically women of color, women of color, not only working on the front lines of this crisis in roles as nurses and home health and personal care aides and child care and, and other supports, but women of color are also overrepresented in low paid jobs. Those are the jobs being cut retail, hospitality, restaurants. So I really wanted to look at the intersection of race and gender to make sure that wasn't lost in this narrative, in this story that we're telling about the pandemic and the subsequent response to it. And my guess is that there's some section of the economy that isn't even isn't even acknowledged officially. The folks who don't get a check because they didn't file a tax return in the year before or who are working in a, you know, in the cash economy for whom for for whom there is there is absolutely no support. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And we talk a little bit about that in the report, right? The folks who work in the cash economy, disproportionately LGBTQ women and other people of color. There are undocumented and immigrant workers who also work in the cash economy who have been largely left out of this recovery and relief packages. So yes, there are certainly a number of other people who are, again, still women of color, but women of color who have sort of these multiple burdens or identities as immigrant women and LGBTQ women as well. So this is huge, and and it seems like an incredible problem. What are you recommending to people? So is there kind of a short-term thing that, that folks can do to try and move this thing around? We can talk a little bit more later about the long-term opportunities or where we can start pointing this country, but what right now do you see as the opportunity to help support people who are on the front lines, who are in desperate need right now, and for whom we are just not supporting? Well, there's a lot, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. the recovery and relief packages, I think, reflected you know what we're seeing in the current administration's values, keeping wealth in the hands of the wealthy and corporations and not really providing adequate support for everyday people and workers, even micro-business owners, right? What we saw with the PPP, those loans didn't make it into the hands of women and minority-owned small businesses and micro-businesses, right? Financial institutions prioritize larger companies that they already had pre-existing lending relationships with. We know that banks have a history of racist and sexist institutional practices and that women and people of color face challenges to access to capital and loans for their small businesses. So to the point where those funds ran out almost immediately and they had to enact another $310 billion in funds but they didn't make any changes to the eligibility or the program requirements for, for that. So they had some guidance to just discourage some of these larger companies or publicly traded companies from receiving money, but they didn't prohibit them from doing so. So what we really need are funds explicitly for micro business owners. A vast majority of women of color owned businesses do not have employees. So they would fall into that micro business owner category, right? I think only 7% of women of color owned businesses are employer businesses, even though women of color owned businesses are growing at a faster rate than other firms. So what you see in this situation is we're going to have an exacerbation of these disparities for women of color as a result of this recovery and relief legislation and this coronavirus crisis. Women of color who were already behind are just getting pushed further behind by these policies and this response. So we need, yes, we need more funds explicitly that go towards women and minority-owned businesses and micro-business owners. And that was something that was not enacted in the second round of funds. Yeah, I think we can also all agree that the federal response has been 
you know, lousy and that regions and states are having to step up to be able to fill in the gaps because there just isn't any leadership. And you hail from the great state of Georgia where your governor, well, <laughs> the less said the better, but you're in Atlanta, right? That's right. Are there places where regional regions, cities, whatever, are coming together, the foundations are stepping up or community foundations? What are you seeing about kind of the response that is closer to home, that people have some agency in helping to facilitate? Here in Atlanta, we are seeing very similar outcomes to what we're seeing across the country, where uh, African-American people are the most infected and have the highest death rates. Black women uh, make up 39% of female infections here in the state. And we're grateful that we have a mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who is trying to continue to promote social distancing and, and keep us safe, even though at the state level, you're right, we're relaxing social distancing measures. And Brian Kemp has opened up certain businesses, including you know bowling alleys and and barber shops and, and things of that nature where it seems like it'd be really difficult to actually practice social distancing. If somebody is cutting your hair, they're going to be really close to your face, even if you're both wearing a mask. Really long scissors. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people here recognize that it's too soon and that it might not be safe and that we need to continue to be vigilant and to try to protect ourselves. But we are tracking and, and carefully watching and waiting to see what's going to happen. Are we going to have an uptick in cases? Is there going to be a swell? I, I think we're all kind of on the edge of our seats with that. And I would say I do think a lot of local organizations and foundations are stepping up to try to help fill some of these gaps. Even restaurants are doing the same. There's so many funds right now to be raised to help workers who have been you know, laid off or who are, are out of work, just to try to make sure that, that those folks have the resources that they need. And there's been resources as well to support like the LGBTQ community, the undocumented community and other groups who are really on the margins here. So you, you do see a lot of folks coming together, stepping up where they can, even in small ways, you know, neighbors supporting each other, people sewing masks for each other, things like that. But overall, we're, I think we're all a little bit rattled and a little bit fearful about this sort of response from our, our state leadership that is encouraging us or telling us that it's safe to go out when we see that with over 30,000 confirmed cases in the state, that it doesn't quite feel like we're, we're ready for that. Yeah. So someone said to me, well, you know, the governor decided that things are OK. <laughs> it's like, well, the governor <laughs> hasn't figured out how to defeat the virus. Right. Well, the governor is not a, a public health official. He's not a doctor. He's not, you know, right. I would think that we have the CDC right here in Atlanta and that you would maybe, you know, heed some of their recommendations. Yeah. No, but it's like kids. Like, if Johnny told you to walk off a cliff, would you do so? And this is so hard. And as you obviously point out, information is so fractured. How did you bring all of this together so fast? For starters, were you one of those people in college who you got the paper in on the first day, like the day after it was assigned? Because <laughs> like, this is pretty impressive. Undergrad or grad? No, I think I was a better <laughs> student in graduate school. That's a really good question. And I think when the first round of coronavirus legislation was passed, I started to really pay attention to what was coming up. And as they started to negotiate the CARES Act and what needed to go into the CARES Act and our partners were working on advocating for the paid leave pieces and the unemployment benefit pieces and things like that, I really started to pay attention and just was kind of 
consuming the news, like furiously consuming, okay, what are people saying about this? What's included in these packages, reading through the legislation, talking to our partners. And I just started compiling all of that data. And then I already had the data about what the current economic outcomes are for women of color, right? So a lot of the data and the, and the, and the facts that are in here are, are information that we already knew, right? We knew that women of color earned less on the dollar and owned less than a penny on the dollar compared to white men, right? We knew that women of color had less access to healthcare, had you know less access to paid sick days through their employers, had more housing cost burden, more instances of living in poverty, et cetera, right? Like these were outcomes that we already knew. And I felt like my job was just to try to connect the two pieces of the puzzle. So I really went through sort of each piece or each provision in the legislation that I thought was most relevant for women of color and tried to bring those facts together. Like, okay, if this is what we're seeing, right, if we know women of color disproportionately work in these industries like food service and retail, and those are the industries that are laying people off, well, we know they're going to lose their jobs at a higher rate, right? If we know that women of color are more often the breadwinners and caregivers in their households, we know they're going to be disproportionately impacted by these childcare needs and the need for paid leave, right? Things like that. So it's just, we know women of color hold more student loan debt, right? Black women hold the most student loan debt of any group. And so how are these policies around a six month forbearance actually going to benefit or not black women or women of color? Then we start to see, oh, okay, there are a lot of insufficiencies in these policies, right? There are certainly some things that are helpful, and so I don't want to, to minimize some of the benefit that did come out of these policies, but I think the biggest issue is that they were grossly insufficient. And if we don't continue to provide support, whether that's additional direct cash payments to people as we get through this storm, whether that's really figuring out how not only to put moratoriums on evictions, but to actually cancel some of those rent payments, still making sure that landlords and folks are paid. I'm worried about what's going to happen when these temporary safeguards are revoked. That's what I'm looking at now is like, okay, what's going to happen when all of a sudden payments come due on student loans and rent and mortgages? What's going to happen when people no longer have access to some of this paid sick time and, and, and paid leave? that were enacted as part of these policies. What's gonna happen when the additional $600 for unemployment per week goes away and people are still out of jobs and businesses are still struggling to recover in this economy, right? That's what I'm trying to look at as well is looking forward, well, what's gonna happen when this temporary, albeit insufficient safety net is completely eradicated? Well, we're gonna talk more about how we solve these problems after this short break. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. I'm talking today with Dominique Derbini, who's the deputy director of Closing the Women's Wealth Gap Initiative. 
And we're talking about her report on the margins, economic security for women of color through the coronavirus crisis and beyond. Dominique, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the concept of wealth. Obviously, you work for an organization called the Women's Wealth Gap Initiative. Uh, but sometimes I've noticed within the progressive community, the word wealth, it can it, it can set people off sometimes. Like it's not something that people should aspire to or, or something. It's it's interesting conversations that I've had, and I, I have to confess I don't fully understand them. C- can you just talk a little bit about why you're talking about wealth and not income and, and how you think about financial security in that broader context? You know, it, it's interesting that you raise that, Eric, because we actually did a survey where the feedback that we received is wealth is seen as extravagance or Uh as excess. You know, it's something that's above and beyond what you need. It's seen as being able to buy yachts and homes (laughs) and fancy cars, right? Things that everyday working people don't necessarily feel they have access to, or even that they should aspire to. It's sort of seen as a dirty word. Mm -hmm. But when I'm talking about wealth, closing the women's wealth gap, as you mentioned, like we're really focused on understanding wealth in terms of what you own, like cash savings, retirement accounts, equity in a home, minus what you owe, credit card debt, student loan debt, medical debt, et cetera. Having some kind of cushion that you can use in periods of economic hardship like the one that we're in. So emergency savings to help weather this storm. Income is what helps people pay bills and get by day to day and maybe meet their basic needs, and maybe not, as we've seen that a lot of these jobs are grossly underpaid. But wealth is what helps people manage economic hardship or job loss. And it can also help people get ahead or even be passed down from generation to generation. Now, the wealth gap, you know, shows us that most people of color, women of color, haven't benefited from intergenerational transfers of wealth due to racist and sexist policies and practices that have helped to build wealth for some at the expense of others. We actually know that women of color own less than a penny on the dollar compared to white men. So that means that women of color have way fewer financial resources to draw on in the midst of this crisis if and when they lose their jobs or face a long-term hardship. And we know that's what we're in for. So wealth is really important because it's actually a more significant determinant of how a person or family's financial well-being is rather than just income. And I can imagine things like redlining or predatory lending or there are all sorts of things that conspire against certain people from being able to accumulate wealth. That's right. There's been a history of those types of policies and practices, and several of them persist today. For women, you couldn't even get loans or credit in without your husband's name or a, a man's name on those loans for and just until the past, what, 40 years? During the last recession, we saw that women and women of color were disproportionately steered into subprime mortgages and loans. And then as a result, their homes were foreclosed upon. We continue to see a lot of these practices today. There were also certain bills in the past, like the GI Bill, that were supposed to support all veterans in being able to have access to education and to purchase homes. And we saw that disproportionately black and brown veterans were not afforded those opportunities. Those were moments in time where some families were able to help build wealth and then that wealth has been able to be passed down, but others were locked out of those opportunities. So you've talked about narratives and about framing this issue in a way that people can understand. How do you see creating a new narrative, particularly in the the recovery phase, that helps people understand about how interconnected we are 
as a society and how important this issue of equity is to ensuring that we, we actually can live in a prosperous, like a truly prosperous, healthy society as we move forward. How do you turn that narrative? How do you help shape the way people think and talk about this work? That's an excellent question, Eric. And I think part of that is really understanding the contributions that women and women of color make to our economy, understanding that the roles that they are playing as breadwinners, as workers, as caregivers in their families and communities, understanding the earning power that they have. They make more consumer purchases than than other groups. They're starting businesses at faster rates. So there's a really significant role that women and women of color play in this economy. And when we create policies that support people who are at the margins, people who are disproportionately being hurt, people who are suffering most, those things actually benefit all of us. And so it's recognizing that if we do create policies that support people who are earning very low wages, that are not having access to paid leave, that are being left out of the unemployment insurance benefits, et cetera, then once those people benefit, then everyone will benefit from the implementation of those policies. So I think part of it is just helping to show what contribution, what benefit, what role women of color are playing in our society and economy, and then also how that benefits all of us. And how did you get interested in in these economic questions? I mean, you have a background in social work, but you're in you're now really an expert in these economic issues. Why did you see that this was a, an important aspect of trying to bring about justice? So I'm a macro social worker. And when I was in my program, social work, really the core tenant is social justice. What I wanted to focus on was larger systems change. And so macro social work is more focused around policy and organizing and nonprofit management and partnerships and things like that. And so while I was in graduate school, I actually interned with Robin McKinney at the Cash Campaign of Maryland, their statewide earned income tax credit coalition uh, that provides free tax preparation services and other supports across the state. While I was working with her was really when I started to learn more about what contributes to or extracts from financial stability for households. And so I learned about programs like individual development accounts or match savings account programs. I learned about things like financial education and financial coaching. I learned about things like down payment assistance for homeownership and and things like that. And so I started to kind of see how these pieces fit together in my experiences and in my previous education and even in my family and extended family. I knew a bit about what poverty looked like and how poverty played out. And I knew the connection that poverty had to so many other social issues and problems. And I wanted to understand, well, what drives poverty? What causes poverty? What's really undergirding that? And then I wanted to understand what can be done to address it. How do we create a playing field that's more equitable, that allows everybody to have a basic level of financial stability and security and to have some choices and options? My first position was managing a volunteer income tax assistance, VITA, or free tax preparation program in Richmond, Virginia, where we had about 14 tax sites. And I provided support for that coalition around training, getting additional funding and resources, integrating financial capability services into the tax sites. But what we saw season after season were the same families coming in. We had the same families coming in who were so grateful to get those refunds. Those refunds 
made such a huge impact in their life. It was the one time that they might've been able to save or get something for their children or just pay off some of their debts. This one little chunk of money was such a huge impact for them, but their economic position wasn't changing, right? They were coming back year after year, same income bracket. And overall, their circumstances hadn't changed, even if they had this one little nugget of, of hope. I wanted to, I wanted there to be more. So I really wanted to dig into, okay, how do I focus more on systems change? How do I understand what the underlying drivers of poverty and economic insecurity are? And then what can I do to help to shift those? And so that's really how I I, I came into this work. I am very passionate about economic justice. I've been in this space for about a decade and I moved on to working with Prosperity Now for more than five years on asset building and financial capability service design and implementation and the racial wealth divide and economic inequality. You can't really talk about it without talking about race. You know, you have to be willing to name things like race and gender and what are the implications there. And we have to be able to talk about the ways that some policies and some institution, institutional practices have benefited certain groups or been designed for certain groups and then have left out others or even extracted wealth from others. So that's really what brought me into this space. And of course, this position with closing the women's wealth gap just felt like such a natural fit to come to this at the intersection of race and gender, especially as a black woman. I live at this intersection. You know, these are issues that also impact my life and the and the lives of people in my family and my community. So this is just what I feel compelled and called to do and focus on. Do you think this is the moment people are starting to have this conversation about how, you know, this is the time we're going to now rethink the economy. We're going to rethink how people work. We rethink how we care for people who need the care the most. Is this, is this the moment? I sure hope so. I mean, I think if there was ever a moment for a revolution, this is it. The time is now. This pandemic has altered our lives as we know it. And people keep talking about how, well, we can't really go back to the the way things were. And do we even want to? Were those things serving us or who were they serving? So I do think that now is, is a time to envision a new future that embodies who we really want to be as a people, a society, and as a global economy. There's a long list of things that we clearly are going to need to address. And just off the top of my head, I would say childcare, healthcare, tenant protections, fair wages, maybe a basic income, and then things like paid vacation, paid sick leave, that kind of stuff. Where do you start? I mean, what am I left leaving out and where do you start and what do you think the prospects are for moving on this kind of very broad, almost integrated agenda? I would agree with all of the things you mentioned, right? Like I think universal, permanent, paid family and medical leave, universal health care and child care, right? I, I think that those are necessary policy reforms, permanent policy reforms that we need. And I think we also will have to consider some proactive policy reforms. So most of these are in response to some of the challenges and issues that we have. What are policies that are also going to help us to narrow these racial and gender wealth gaps that are going to help us to create more equity in our economy? So I think about things like baby bonds, right? What would it look like to provide every child born in the U.S. with a trust account that is seeded with some funding based on household income and wealth and that is able to grow until a child reaches adulthood and then be used to help 
pay for education or, or buy a house or start a business or, or just invest in yourself. When I think about these kinds of policies, I know it seems so far fetched or so maybe so far ahead given that right now there's we're in crisis mode and it's immediate needs that need to be met. But I think we do have to be thinking about these long-term policy solutions as well that both address the inequalities in our system as they currently stand, but also that are more proactive in helping us to create a more equitable and inclusive economy. Do you think that there's an opportunity to do the analysis of what this stuff costs and what the benefits are, I guess the cost-benefit of analysis of a comprehensive package and boy, it would be great to have someone with an understanding of economics. I think so. I think there are organizations that are already doing that. I know that there has been some work that the National Women's Law Center has been doing throughout this crisis, looking at each of the pieces of legislation and offering recommendations. I think about folks like the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the Center for American Progress that also put out a report about the disproportionate impacts of this crisis for women of color. Uh, I think there are organizations that are doing some of those assessments and economists that are doing those assessments to say, this is what it would cost. And we have to remember right now that we are also in the midst of a, a major election. And now this is me just speaking as myself and not as a representative of closing the women's wealth gap. But we can't forget that it's so important, more not more important than ever. It's always significantly important, but it's so important for us to vote, even in the, especially in the midst of some of these voter suppression tactics that we're seeing, the ways that they're using this crisis and this virus to sort of thwart people's participation and civic engagement and their rights, you know, to, to vote. It's so important that we continue to push our leaders and push the people who want to represent us to make sure that they are actually representing our needs and to do some of this analysis and to promote some of these policy changes that we want to see. I think there are folks who are doing that work. And I think that that's information that does exist. Yeah, this is this is a drum I, I suspect that we're going to be banging on this show for quite some time, that, that this recovery needs to be the right kind. I'm just going to leave you with this question that we ask a lot of folks, and particularly now I think we all need to hear from people on this question, which is what, what gives you hope? Oh, that is a great question. What gives me hope? Right now what's giving me hope is I see so many people who are leaning into each other, who are upholding and promoting this connection that we all have as human beings and, and the ways that we do rely on and need each other to get through this type of crisis. I see a lot of that in my community, in my family, in my social groups and networks, and that definitely gives me hope. What gives me hope is that issues like this are being talked about more in the, in the national and public discourse, that people are hopefully getting more and accurate information about the effects of this crisis and who's being harmed and why. Again, I think that narrative piece is just so critical. Who's telling the story? What stories are getting told? And how are they being told? And then which stories are being concealed? And so I think if we continue to put out this information and to continue to drive this conversation so that people see that it's it's also, it's not just a people of color issue or a women of color issue. We have to understand the ways that if this is deeply impacting people, people on the margins, that actually impacts all of us. And that impacts our entire society and economy. It doesn't only impact, impact people of color. And that's a concern that I have is I feel like 
the narrative has shifted this to being just a people of color thing. This is just a people of color issue. And really, this is an issue that impacts all of us and that will have ripple effects for all of us. It's indirectly or directly affecting all of our lives. So my only hope is that we can really come together, stand together, rise together to create the future that that we really want to sustain, one that reflects the values that I believe we have and that creates true equality and equanimity for all of us. Well, I'm really, really glad that you're doing this work, Dominique, and I appreciate your coming on the show to talk about it. And, and thanks so much for what you're doing. Thank you. Dominique Dermody, the deputy director of Closing the Women's Wealth Gap Initiative. Her report is on the margins, economic security for women of color through the coronavirus crisis and beyond, which you can download at the Closing the Women's Wealth Gap Initiative website. Would you just tell us what the website is, even though people have the Google? Sure. Please go to our website. It's Women's Wealth Gap dot org slash report if you want to get the report. Well, Dominique, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciated this conversation. And we're back once again, Mr. Brown. You know, as we get started, can I just say this again? Because this is this title is is a is a very important and necessary to say mouthful. It's hard to say. On, <laughs> on the margins, economic security for women of color through the coronavirus crisis and beyond, published April 2020. So the crisis erupts in the United States February, yeah. March. So shelter in place goes into place middle of March middle in March, the yeah. Bay Area. And by April 2020, womenswealthgap.org, closing the women's wealth gap, Dominique and her team produced this incredible piece of work. And can we start there? I wonder if you could shift gears. Sure. What does this say about the need for this kind of capacity in our field? Because you asked Dominique about this. So how do you even produce this? And part of it was work she had to do in the moment, but part of it was drawing on a repository of data and experience that she'd accumulated during a decade of doing this work. And I actually thought that piece of this was incredibly interesting and illuminating. What do you think about that? Well, for starters, Dominique could be making five times as much of whatever <laughs> she's making as an investment banker or working in some, you know, for-profit entity. Wait, or, wait, you're trying to, you're telling me she could make more money if she was exploiting economic inequality instead of addressing it? Is, nope. that, is that what you're trying to suggest, Mr. Brown? Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, man. And the point is that there are people in our field who are dedicated and who will who do this work because they need to, and Dominique is one of them. Yeah. And I, again, I'm just so impressed and, and thankful that there are folks who have that kind of, this, this great match of intelligence and hard work, kind of a work ethic. Tenacity, yeah, just And, and a commitment, a commitment to justice. And and that's why it's, I'm, I'm thrilled. I, we need a lot more Dominiques in the world. Uh, fortunately, our our field has a lot of them, which is great, and there probably aren't enough, and we need to do better by them. But it's this is what you get when you build institutions that have people who can do stuff. Let's help smart and focused people do good work. I mean, that's what I think it means, right? And to have a person of talent and capability just able to assemble the information required to 
respond to a moment when it erupts like this. I mean, this is extraordinary. I mean, that that's to me that that to me is what it's about. And we didn't talk a lot about communications as such, but it's a very good communications tool. And just another way of reminding ourselves that this is ostensibly a show about communications, which is that she's been able to capture these ideas and these issues in ways that people can understand. It's really simple. The, the, the piece itself is well, it's just well presented. The arguments are clear and they're understandable. So it's not your grandfather's Brookings report. I don't know, maybe the old Brookings. Great <laughs> stuff comes out of Brookings. But you get my point. This is not yeah. some dry old thing that is just, you know, coming up with chapter and verse about what's wrong, it is a good communications tool. And without the good communications, this kind of stuff doesn't really end up having the same kind of influence that it should. Well, and where does she start? And this is such an interesting part of your conversation as it relates to this entire podcast and all the topics on it. And I can't wait to come back to listen to this conversation in particular a year from now or two years from now. And hopefully this entire one part of this moment feels like it's well in our, you know, rear view mirror. And we'll see if the other pieces that, um, the women's wealth gap is addressing how, how we're doing with those pieces. But she starts with narrative, doesn't she? And she starts with the narrative, that conversation that started initially about what the virus doesn't discriminate, you know, everybody can get this virus. And then you poke at those numbers a little bit more. And, and we heard this from your colleague from the Atlantic, right? We heard this from the, the COVID tracking project. Yep. When you actually look at it more closely, guess what? What a surprise. Black and brown people are dying at faster rates. Um, what did you make about that piece? And I loved that, uh, that piece underneath that when Dominique started talking about, you know, the systems of inequality that are at play that are in that those sets of numbers and those outcomes that we're seeing being so different between different population groups, disproportionately different. Well, if you have nothing to fall back on, if you don't have wealth, if you don't have a nest egg, if you don't have, you know, a plan B, then you have to go into the front lines and you have to get out there and you work. And if you're a day laborer or if you work in a cash economy, you you might not be able to get, I mean, people who didn't get a tax return didn't get the stimulus money. So, I mean, this, this, this system is a mess. And when she starts talking about wealth, and I asked her this question about why wealth is an off-putting word for some folks, it's, it's because the narrative around wealth is, it, it, is that it is equivalent to privilege. And the real narrative around wealth is that it gives you the tools to be able to deal with a health crisis, with a family crisis. It gives you the opportunity and to, to, to pass along a better life for your kids. And so reclaiming that word wealth, is w which is what they are working hard to do, is so important. And I find that compelling. And I think the fact that she is doing that, that kind of work and, and talking about it in that way is important. And she's right. What can I say? <laughs> what can I say? She's right. Well, and, you know, she's talking about um, the you know, women of color facing disproportionate wealth lost and, you know, through the prior financial crisis that they'd never really recovered from that. And then, you know, black and Latino women, she's saying don't have enough savings to live above the poverty line, absent some other form of income, 
most can't do that for even a period of weeks or even short months, right? And that whole notion of wealth and being a resource that you can fall back on was really interesting. And she says it so plainly and so well, it makes perfect sense. And yet I'd never really thought about that phraseology in that context before. You know what I mean? Yeah. Does that land for you? Yeah, Is yeah, that your yeah. experience with you? And my colleague, Elena Chavez Quesada at the San Francisco Foundation has been working on this issue as well. And I've been learning from her about this long list of things that conspires to keep people from being able to accumulate wealth, like the fines and fees that you get a parking ticket on your car and then they tow it away and then you can't pay for it and then you can't get to work and you lose your job and you lose your like this incredibly awful set of kind of pernicious things that we do to people and we do to people who don't have the means to be able to overcome even a small event like getting literally getting a parking ticket these things go together because one conspires against the other by continuing to you know bail is another one if you have enough money for bail, you get to go home. You don't have enough money for bail, you get a rotten jail. <laughs> and so th- those, and fortunately, there is some bail reform is underway here in California, which is a step in the right yeah. direction. But those are all of the kinds of things that kind of lump together that now take a pandemic. And then you see what happens, which is that people are dying because they can't do a Zoom call to do their service job. The folks who are cleaning the subways or taking your blood or that, all that kind of stuff. So it is time for us to rebuild our economy in a way that's fair. You know, I liked how you explored her background, kind of, you know, her journey into this set of issues, this field. I loved hearing her talk about all the things she had learned along the way, but I'd never encountered the phrase, and maybe I'm just totally revealing my utter naivety here, but macro social work. And the notion that, you know, macro social work really focuses on systems change and all of the broader pieces that need to be at play, of course, social work being at its core about social justice. But was this notion about macro social work, is that is that something, is that a term that you're super familiar with and you've spent a lot of time around? Am I the only person who's never heard that phraseology before? No, I think before? you're probably among many. Um, I know I hadn't, I hadn't hmm. heard it before, but so it's, it's a really interesting way of thinking about how do you apply these principles of social work in, in that much broader way and understand systems. And I thought it was really cool. So macro social work. Put it down. And what, you know, learning about what contributes to or subtracts from financial security. So then we get into, and we're almost done here. I know you're ready to go, Mr. Bradley, but I can't, <laughs> not, I cannot let you leave. The quarantine is calling, Kirk. Ask we get a you, we, you ask, is now the time for revolution? Is now the time to rethink the economy? And I have to say, you offered a pretty compelling uh, set of initiatives, childcare, healthcare, tenant protections, fair wages, basic income, paid vacation, paid sick and family leave. And you actually got good marks there. Dominique said you, she'd agree with all of it and, and then only added really, yeah, universal health care and universal paid and family leave. But then plus some really interesting ideas, baby bonds. Yeah. You know, every yeah. child is born with the trust that can grow to help them pay for crucial things in the future. So what do you make of all of this package of things that we're talking about? You know, I look at this list and I'm just paid vacation, not being a basic right in the United States, let alone childcare or healthcare or any of the others. It's extraordinary that we're having this conversation these days, isn't it? Well, we don't want to be Denmark. (laughs) 
you know, Denmark's doing great well, right now. <laughs> yeah. Early in the crisis, the Norwegians said, basically, if you're coming from a stressed country like the United States, please get, get home get fast or stay away. And then, well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. uh, it's amazing, though, because so I didn't vote for Andrew Yang, but but his idea that we'd give everybody a thousand dollars, people and, ha, 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 and then a month later, we did. Uh, so, of course, he's saying we should give it every month. And I totally agree. You're right. These ideas are now in the currency. How are you going to make a good case that people shouldn't get access to health care when they need it? I mean, maybe people would still kind of put, put their blinders on and decide that they want freedom to die. But these ideas now, they're in the conversation and now they have currency and now we have to see what to do about them. Well, and for a podcast that's nominally about communications, isn't this the time to be really hitting the pavement with all of this messaging, right? With all of these. And so again, coming back to this extraordinary piece of work that um, Dominique has put together and closing the women's wealth gap has put together, this notion of focusing on economic security for women of color in a moment like this and being so ready at the ready to address the moment, I just think it's, it's just a tour de force, right? It's just, it's just an incredible illustration of how to be in the crisis, but also being proactively about what's next and how do we solve this? It's really a tremendous piece of work yeah, here. And we'll be talking more about the, the recovery with kindness and justice. And pretty soon we'll, I, I hope to hope to talk about this really fabulous film about kindness, which, uh, which I had a, a part in. And uh, as soon as it's safe to talk about it, I can't wait to have the uh, co-director on. And oh, and one more thing. This is apropos of nothing at all. I don't think <laughs> I, I will just say that if anybody heard the Easter egg that I dropped into an episode recently, uh, a special little gift uh, that if you stayed to the bitter end, you heard something pretty funny. And that's all I'm going to say. So if anyone heard that, you can just go ahead and send us a note on the website. I, I bet you didn't even hear it, Kirk, but it was, it was pretty funny. Well, Mr. Brown will make you dinner at his house. I keep I keep putting you out there to, to make people dinner. That's right. And make another dinner here. Tell me what the Easter egg was. I'll make you dinner when it's when it's when it's safe. Well, Dominic Dermody, Deputy Director for Enclosing the Women's Wealth Gap, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, talking to us about your work. And I'm gonna read the entire title again because it's that important. On the margins, economic security for women of color through the coronavirus crisis and beyond. From April 2020, you can find it on their website, womenswealthgap.org. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And Eric, once again, what a conversation. Thank you for bringing us all into that. Well, thanks, Kirk. We'll see you next time. We'll see you soon. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no, thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it. Ready when you are.